Final scene of No Surrender by Constance Elizabeth Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. L'envoi, the passing of the women. The balconies of the Lyceum Club in Piccadilly were crowded with the members, and their friends, both men and women, assembled like the vast crowds below to see the great procession of women pass by. From thirty to forty thousand women of every class, of every age, of every shade of opinion, social, political, and religious, banded, welded together, in a solid, compact whole, by one unswerving purpose. Alice Walker had brought a friend of her Paris school days, Miss Penelope Otis, of Philadelphia, to see the show. Penelope in no way shared Alice's ever-deepening interest and sympathy in the women's movement. She looked on suffragists and aunties equally as very tiresome, boring people, and did wish, when the subject was discussed in her presence, that they would talk about something more sensible and amusing. Penelope thought, however, the great spectacle today might be entertaining. She wanted, besides, to see everything typically English, and so it fell out that she found herself watching with a kind of eager, curious interest for the coming of those queer, unaccountably fanatical creatures, the suffragists and the suffragettes, who were uniting the forces of all their various societies in the biggest political procession and demonstration the streets of London had perhaps ever as yet witnessed, though it was but a foreshadowing of what would come later. Had Terence O'Neill been in town instead of with his regiment in Ireland, it is certain his betrothed would never have been permitted thus heedlessly to wander into what he considered such dangerous paths. Poor Terence! He felt sore enough already at his sister having thrown herself headlong into the crazy movement, not only having suffered the disgrace of arrest and imprisonment, but the danger of a long hunger strike and the torture of forcible feeding. Had it not been for the intervention of Helen Boulder, her life itself might have been sacrificed. It was certainly not Mary's fault that it was not so, for she had bitterly resented being reprieved. Alice had found herself in the very difficult situation of being obliged to show sympathy to her beloved Terence and his grievance, while all her woman's heart went out in secret admiration, bordering on worship, for his sister. It was with Mary's mother Alice felt most at ease. Together they wept over Mary's splendid folly, and knelt in such humble admiration at her shrine that they would no more have dared interfere for her reprieve when in prison than burn incense to a heathen idol on behalf of a Christian martyr. From the first Alice determined it would be best to say just as little in her daily letter to Terence of how she and Penelope were spending this summer afternoon as she had said of the famous dinner-party. She would mention it, of course, but in her own gentle and reassuring way directing his attention mainly to some funny incident which should disarm suspicion and alarm. Alice Walker was one of those young women who, while impressing their mankind with their pliability and malleability, retain intact an absolute inflexibility of character, the hardest of all natures to be influenced or convinced from the outside, being fundamentally lacking in the suppleness which appears to mere man their chief charm. To know them he has to marry them, and even then, such is the guilelessness of many of the self-styled superior sex, that after years of matrimony, 
a daisy or an alice by the river's brim a simple alice tis to him and it is nothing more these alices are the wise virgins who to rectify in some measure the handicapped conditions under which they find their sex suffering have developed to a fine point woman's inexhaustible resource and wit not infrequently they are forced like the stream which flows in spite of all obstacles to the sea round circuitous by-paths and subterranean ways but they invariably attain their goal in due time among the crowd on the balcony like a strange migratory bird strayed into this western world by mistake appeared the dark dreamy face of a young indian someone introduced him by an unpronounceable name to alice walker and her friend and he took a seat beside them he was of the brahmin caste a lawyer going through a course at the middle temple and already extraordinarily at home with the english tongue just below the people were massing together the usual good-natured london crowd out to be amused ready to laugh uproariously at the feeblest flicker of wit from the crowd jester that jocose public-spirited young man who pops up as inevitably on such occasions as the froth on ginger-beer the big luminous eyes of the indian watched everything about him with interest the interest of a sphinx in the doings of an ant-heap he listened attentively to the laughing chatter of the two girls and his eyes met their frank blue gaze discreetly at first he spoke but little merely a few words of polite assent when they turned and included him in their conversation but those few words showed he had plenty more at his command he looks quite nice and tame whispered penelope otis to her friend but he probably has the most horrible oriental ideas about women if we could see inside him how exciting said alice do get him to turn himself inside out you can if anybody could i expect he looks upon us with horror horror my dear fascinated admiration that's more like it and i'm not sure those magnetic eyes of his aren't just fascinating me he's very interesting penelope otis had been brought up in an atmosphere of intellectual and moral culture from her earliest schoolroom days she had imbibed the higher if not the highest education her reasoning powers had been well developed but the imagination had not kept pace with them everything interested her nothing had as yet touched her she was travelling now to complete her mental equipment and while eagerly absorbing new impressions she viewed life much as a spectator at the play a spectator in the comfortable stalls the play this afternoon was very interesting she just loved it it was so typically english said penelope turning to the young indian beside her very english very western he made answer politely i think it is exclusively english she maintained this dear old country and its inhabitants are unique absolutely unique and quite too deliciously entertaining whatever they do don't you have suffrage processions in america asked alice with some asperity not quite appreciating the role allotted to england as a source of perennial entertainment for the young american tourist well it's like this with us her friend answered soothingly we couldn't have anything in this style there's no raison d'etre for it if we wanted the vote our men wouldn't dream of opposing us they know their place far too well 
our women's deputations are received at washington with just the same respect and consideration as those of the men while here you're so delightfully medieval that's what i just love about you it's like getting a peep into the dear old middle ages isn't it she turned again to the serious young oriental with us again it is so different you see our ideas do not change about eternal verities what they were in the middle ages that they are to-day he gave a smile whimsical mysterious his eyes seemed to be looking at the same moment back into the past and out into the future eternal verities repeated penelope but don't you believe in progress in the march of civilization the brahmin shook his head not as you do these are outward things superficial we would say of no importance civilization is but the turning of the wheel of time there is no progress save that of the soul and for that many incarnations are necessary alice looked at him curiously as she asked do you believe that the same person is incarnated both as a man and a woman certainly many times a man and many times a woman then struck in penelope poaching in her unscrupulous way on alice's thought why don't you see your women have a better time you should remember you'll benefit by it probably in your next life yourself benefit but to us it would be no benefit quite the reverse if for the evolution of a soul it is sent to live as a woman on earth it is to learn those lessons which the woman's life alone can teach and by that you mean to view the world behind shutters and veils and have the pokiest time you tyrants of men can devise laughed penelope lightly but the indian answered solemnly to learn as the woman learns in most lives the great lessons whereby the soul grows best self-sacrifice self-abnegation self-control humility the bearing in silence of bodily pain obedience often to natures far inferior to her own to be set at naught and little considered viewing this passing life from behind veils and shutters as you say that so the spirit may retire within and meditate on the eternal on the unseen and real this is the highest benefit penelope found herself for the moment unaccountably extinguished by these curious oriental ideas she had no answer ready but alice following every word with intense interest bent forward then you don't really despise women i mean not as belonging to an inferior sex like so many of our men do she asked how could we he said in gentle surprise a soul does not belong to any sex it is educated by the experiences of both sexes only in the west where you are materialists can women be despised on account of sex but you despise the brains the judgment of women surely insisted alice i do not think you can ever understand us or think as we do the first principle is different for you of the west the mind grows out of the body the greater out of the less with us the soul has no sex i honour my mother above all human beings i listen to her counsels as to the voice of god 
She was Perda at the age of nine, and bore me, her eldest son, when she was but eleven years old. She has never travelled or seen beyond her garden wall, and she knows nothing of science or literature or of foreign countries. But her spirit has evolved much. It is a high and noble spirit, and will return to earth next time as a great seer and perhaps a great ruler. It has learnt the lessons appointed through many incarnations. "'And you will probably come back as a woman, and live behind a shutter all your days,' observed Penelope mischievously. "'It would be better, perhaps, for my soul, than to return as a beautiful young girl of America,' he answered, smiling. "'If one does not use well one's manhood, very surely one comes back as a woman, but not as an American lady, I think.' "'Nor a suffragette,' laughed Alice. "'Oh, a suffragette. That is different,' he answered seriously. "'They suffer, those women. They are the instruments of great forces on the other side, working out evolution on the material plane, but spiritually inspired. No one can stop them. They cannot stop themselves, even if they would. They are part of a moral earthquake, in which they may all be immolated. They work out their karma. Perhaps they were cabinet ministers in their last incarnations, suggested Penelope. Tyrannical, narrow-minded old gentlemen. I'll tell Horace Boulder what's before him, to be a suffragette in his next life, laughed Alice. Listen, here they come. All three leant forward as they caught the distant sound of martial music the roll of drums and the roar of the cheering crowd. "'I suppose that cousin of yours, with the sweet Irish eyes, will be walking with the prisoners?' said Penelope. "'Oh, yes. Mary will be carrying a broad arrow, bless her,' answered Alice with a sigh. "'Pity she doesn't marry. She's so attractive,' remarked Penelope. "'But I suppose she scares all the men with these ideas of hers.' "'She converts far more than she scares, I can tell you,' answered Alice. "'But Mary does not want to marry.' "'Poor dear,' laughed Penelope. "'We don't have that complaint among our girls, luckily for the men.' "'I mean,' said Alice, "'not for the sake of being married. "'She may marry any day for the sake of the man, "'and then she wouldn't care two straws how ineligible he was.' "'She's what we'd call a crank.' "'Girls like that oughtn't to be trusted out alone,' remarked Penelope wisely. Louder and louder roared the cheers and rolled the drums. The mounted police pushed back the surging crowd round Hyde Park Corner, and on down Piccadilly wound the great living river of women. It appeared endless, like a stream that had its source away in the heights of some far mountain. Leading the way, with banners gleaming in the sunshine, marched the veterans, a gallant little company of women in the evening of life, whose valiant spirits, like bright, well-worn swords, had most of them well-nigh worn out the frail scabbard. But their tired eyes were bright with hope to-day. Their step showed no sign of faltering or weariness, for at last the goal was surely within sight. Oh, how many times they had already believed it in sight they did not think! These were those who had borne the toil and heat of life's long day, working, digging, ploughing, sowing, since early womanhood. 
side by side with these marched their younger sisters the gallant leaders of the great social and political union whose heroic courage and devotion even to the death test had lifted the question of woman's enfranchisement at last into the arena of practical politics and now surely the hour of dawn was nearing strong men and true had rallied round them the conciliation committee had been formed and the claims of the women would never more be allowed to be pushed aside however reluctant the government might be to keep their pledges the staunch committee would see to it there was no more shuffling and shirking not that their hope rested mainly on their men friends however no it was in the great movement itself of which each woman felt she was an integral part moving on like a wave with the irresistible tide before which every obstacle must before long give way next in order came a white-clad band of women and girls of all classes bearing proudly as the very crown and glory of their womanhood the prisoner's badge of disgrace a wand surmounted by the broad arrow all eyes turned on the woman who led them she had the face of one whose eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the lord she walked unconscious of the cheering crowd her feet scarcely seeming to touch the solid ground just behind her four abreast with her companions walked mary o'neill there's mary cried alice excitedly the one at this end isn't she sweet cried penelope otis one wouldn't be surprised to see a halo shine right out round her any moment but the young brahmin was following the leader of the band with rapt intent gaze that woman is like a high priestess he said half to himself alice caught the words she would lay down her life for this cause she said warmly she has laid down her life the indian answered quietly do you know her asked penelope i do not know her as you would say no he answered simply but with her the soul is written on the face you are quite right said alice bending forward and speaking in low eager tones quite right you know what she did not long ago she had been arrested with some working women for an open protest against the government but the home secretary ordered her release at once on the plea of a weak heart the real reason being that she belongs to a well-known family of our aristocracy she determined to show this up by disguising herself as a working girl and getting arrested again this is what she did and proved that the same heart in a working girl did not procure her release from this liberal government there was no other way for they had indignantly denied making any differences when they had been accused of it wasn't it splendid said penelope the indian said nothing but his luminous eyes spoke his keen interest they treated her went on alice while just exactly as they did the other unfortunate working women little thinking who she was when at last their suspicions were aroused as to her identity they at once took fright and released her well it baffles me how she ever managed to deceive them for a day her class is just stamped all over her said penelope who had heard the story when all england rang with it one such a woman is enough to ensure the success of any movement remarked the indian she radiates and her light is reflected on each one of those who follow her all very well you know said a man's voice behind but this show is pure play-acting 
You women love it. Now own up, don't you? I don't know about play-acting. Personally, however devoted I was to theatricals, I should draw the line at prison, a woman's voice answered lightly. Not if you thought you were going to be made into a heroine. Come now. I'd rather sleep comfortably in my own bed than be a Holloway heroine, thank you, replied the lady. Alice Walker also had caught that look on the face of the woman, who walked first in the prisoner's contingent, and was pondering the Indian's words. What a lot of them have been in prison, old and young, and such awfully sweet-looking women, some of them, too. It is a curious country, this old England of yours, observed the American girl, as the six hundred prisoners marched by, and the cheers grew warm with enthusiasm from the crowd below, this crowd which two or three years before would have assembled only in their hundreds, with but jeers and rotten eggs for these same women. The broad arrow, like the cross, had already worked the miracle. And now marched past the long deputation of women doctors and university students in caps and gowns and hoods, a goodly company with strong, firm step and young, frank, fearless faces full of purpose. "'Ought to have been men, they ought,' said an elderly woman, just below the Lyceum balcony. "'Taken the men's work. Tain't fair, I say.' Her voice rang with resentment. "'Taken men's work? That it ain't,' retorted a younger woman. "'Doctorin' women is women's work. And so is teaching the girls. That's what I say. It's the men as taken our work.' and doin' it all the time, too. What business have they sellin' ribbons and laces and doin' ladies' air, I'd like to know. Here, someone get this lady a tub to stand on, cried the crowd jester. Begin again, miss, do. The rest was lost in the laughter of those around them. Above the army of women, and linking the past and present into one great sisterhood, floated the banners bearing the names or portraits of the great company, of those who had gone before, those pioneers down the ages who had fought for freedom, justice, and truth in some form or other, whether in religion, politics, science, or art, prophetess, priestess, saint, martyr, queen, scientist, and artist, each section bore aloft their own special patron, brightest among these constellations, blazing with the oriflamme of France, shone the immortal name of Jeanne d'Arc. Those who followed were too numerous to note, but among them one caught an occasional flash which sent one's thought back to ancient days of Egypt, Greece, and Rome. Down through the centuries followed the lineal descendants of Miriam, Deborah, Sappho, Hypatia, Boudicca, down to recent times of such as Elizabeth Fry, Mary Wollstonecraft, and Mrs. Somerville, the latter proudly borne aloft by the caps and gowns. The writers held up to the sun such golden names as Vittoria Colonna, Jane Austen, George Sand, George Eliot, Charlotte and Emily Bronte, Elizabeth Barrett Browning. The artists with the palettes and brushes walked under the portraits of Angelica Kaufman, Madame Lebrun, and Rosa Bonheur. Beneath the banner of their patron saint, Florence Nightingale, walked the long line of hospital nurses in their small, neat bonnets and long cloaks. These women, with their cheery smile and gentle, patient skill, appealed especially to the spectators. Few among them had not had reason to bless them. "'Hooray for women!' shouted a small boy with a pale little face, which bespoke his experience. "'My, ain't they a dandy lot!' 
said a soldier with enthusiasm. Then followed the long regiment of toilers in great factories and industries, the women who make the wheels go round. The mothers of this band had lived under such conditions of slavery as made their own hard lives seem bright in comparison, for they had not had the bare human right to their own pitiful earnings, the husband legally claiming every penny. One of those devoted women, who took part in the twenty years' fight to win this inestimable boon for her sisters, looked out on the procession to-day as it passed by her windows, and her eyes, grown dim, lit with the old light of battle and of victory, as she noted to what a mighty host the women's army had grown, that army once a mere handful, on and ever on, still they came in their thousands. Textile workers from Lancashire and Yorkshire, in their shawls and clogs, swarthy strong-limbed Welshwomen from the pit's mouth, sweated tailoresses doing government work on sailors' and soldiers' uniforms, at half men's pay, post-office clerks, who had also experienced the bitter difference between justice as meted out to those with the vote and those without, chain-makers from Cradley Heath, hat-makers, bottle-makers, match-makers, jelly-makers, each bearing on a banner the emblem of their trade. On and on they came. Many held their babies in their arms, and returned the greetings of the crowd of spectators with beaming friendly smiles to right and left. A look of steadfast purpose and hope shone on all these workers' faces, old and young alike. And still they passed, the interminable miles and miles of women. Alice caught sight of Jenny as she marched foremost among the Lancashire textile workers. Jenny was to be married to Joe Hopton next month. He had thrown himself with his usual dogged fixity of purpose into the women's cause, and never intended resting, or letting others rest, until every sex disability had been removed, and justice done to women. Poor Maggie's awful sentence had been commuted to three years' penal servitude, a period which it had been whispered might, by great circumspection on the prisoner's part, possibly be shortened another six months. Mrs. Wilmot had touched the spring and set a great machinery in motion. The veteran leader of the Freedom League had rallied to her aid with all the forces at her disposal, and the result had been a monster petition to the Home Secretary, with signatures both of a number and of a significance impossible to disregard. Alice Walker, on hearing from Jenny of her poignant interest in the case, had worked too in a quiet way, a quiet way perforce on her parents' account, but still real enough to make her partake not only in the anxiety, but in the joy of the reprieve. Great forces were working and seething in Alice's formerly complacent and easy-going little soul. She watched herself as through a looking-glass, and wondered what she would find herself obliged to do next. The motive power came from inside, a gradual unfolding like that of a green shoot. Resistance and opposition, which would have combated outside influence, was useless here, as Alice, with her usual philosophy, fully realized. The procession continued. More, and always more, to come. Among the banners flashed the legends, no vote, no tax. Courage is the mother of all the virtues. Stone walls do not a prison make. Dare to be free. And occasional reminders to the antis and laggards, such as, 
Six million women workers need the vote. Rise ye women that be at ease, etc. Then came some of the protest banners, recalling the lines along which the militant movement had passed. The police court protests. The tax resistance. The picketers. 729 hours spent picketing the House of Commons to exercise the subject's historic right of petitioning the King's ministers. Such weary hours, standing there at the closed gates in heat and cold, rain and snow, day after day, week after week, to be ridiculed and scorned by the Noel Crowleys of the house, execrated by the Boulders and Blathertons, pitied half-contemptuously by the more kindly Weirkemps. Other banners told other tales, which the young Brahmin and the American girl spelt out with dispassionate interest and curiosity, while Alice Walker listened and watched, absorbing all in silence. And now the crowd below were making merry over a new diversion, a small dilapidated trail of sandwich men, whom the stream was bearing on its fringe like the straws and sticks of debris on the edge of a flood. Their boards bore the comic announcement, in letters of dull red on a ground of grimy white, Women do not want the vote. The mud, that a few years before would have been flung at the women, had found a new target. Gladly the poor sandwiches would have hidden their diminished heads, such was the uproarious merriment they excited. But they were starving poor creatures, and the men who hired them expected the work to be done, for which they paid. It was typical of the ante that he or she should do their propaganda by deputy, and such deputies. Only when Lord Wimperdale, Mr. Crowley, Mrs. Prendergast, and Miss Selina Crompton begin to parade their own sandwich boards, as the suffragist women so often have done, will they convince the men and women in the street, or on the fence, of the sincerity of their purpose, let alone the righteousness of their cause. "'Why don't the bloomin' aunties carry their own boards?' cried one of the crowd. "'Chuck it, Joe. Game's up, my boy,' laughed another. "'I'll paint you up a fresh board, Bill,' said a stout, pleasant-faced woman with a child in her arms. "'Men do not want their supper. T'would be about as true.' "'Here's a fine banner coming,' cried Penelope. "'John Stuart Mill. And why, I declare, here are a lot of men,' she added, as the deputation of members of the Men's League followed the banner of their great precursor. "'That's Hopton, one of the Labour members, bearing the standard,' said a guest on the balcony. "'The women are getting no end of those fellows to join them.' Alice leant forward just in time to get a good view of Joe Hopton, as he stepped bravely forward, making this public declaration of his new-found faith. "'Well, I do call this one of the most interesting and dramatic scenes I have ever witnessed,' remarked Penelope Otis, after, for her, a long silence." Alice Walker started up suddenly. "'I want to get out,' she said. "'Will you please let me pass?' "'You want to go inside? You're feeling the sun?' inquired her friend, making way for her. "'Shall I come with you?' she asked, as Alice went inside the club. "'No, thank you,' Alice called back. "'You stay where you are. I simply can't. Not another minute.' Down the staircase she rushed and out into the crowded street. Her eyes sparkled. Her cheek was flushed. A girl stood near the club steps, selling ribbons inscribed, Votes for Women, 
Alice pushed a shilling into her hand and seized the ribbon, twisting it rapidly round her broad Panama hat with its plain white satin bow. She threaded her way through with such quiet insistence, all made way for her instinctively. A regiment of women were passing at the moment, led by a distinguished, erect figure, frail and spare and immaterial as a flame, her face finely cut as a cameo. On her silvery-gray hair she wore a black lace veil. Every inch a leader, she held her head high, her eyes had a light, a flash, that told of battles won and battles still to win. Before her was borne aloft a banner on which showed a pair of silver wings springing from a heart. She herself seemed more spirit than body, and quite ready for her own wings, but the sweet grey eyes smiled on the people who pressed forward, giving a special volley of cheers to greet her as she passed, with a look of warm, human sympathy. "'God bless you! Good luck to you! Here's the old warrior! Stick it, missus! Good luck to you!' came from all sides as the men held up their caps and women waved their handkerchiefs to one whose invisible sceptre swayed over their hearts in a way exercised by no crowned sovereign. Alice Walker darted towards her like a lost child, who, on a sudden, sees a haven. "'May I walk behind you? Do you mind?' she gasped out breathlessly. The kind grey eyes smiled down on this unexpected companion. "'Do, my dear, do walk with us. Where do you come from?' Alice fell into line as she answered with a little laugh which was almost a sob. "'I was looking on just as an outsider, till I couldn't bear being an outsider another minute. I—' want to belong suddenly she remembered penelope and turning saw her bending over the balcony waving a handkerchief alice waved back and then disappeared from her friend's sight swallowed up by the river of women well that's really very interesting observed penelope to the young brahmin you never can quite tell what these english women are going to do can you now they cannot tell that themselves they obey a voice, said the Indian, and they are carried forward on the bosom of the onward-flowing river. End of the final scene. End of No Surrender by Constance Elizabeth Maud. Read by Lisa Reichert.